Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode deals with serious and distressing content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, this is Beth. While I've got you, if you love how I survived, please rate, review and subscribe. It helps other fans like you find us too. The whole world just went dark and quiet. I was head first up to my waist down the hippo's throat. I can remember him biting down on me and squeezing so hard that I thought for sure he was going to chomp me in half. This is How I Survived. Stories of everyday people and how they survived against the odds. I'm your host, Beth Young. You know, am I going to die or what? I mean, I, I look back at it now and I thought, you know, how did I ever survive that? I think that I probably survived for a reason. How I Survived. Each stroke of safari guide Paul Templer's paddle took his canoe closer to the stunning, misshrouded Victoria Falls. In the canoe with him were two Spaniards who'd paid for a -a once-in-a-lifetime sunset cruise on the Zambezi River in Zimbabwe. But, gliding along in the late afternoon, they're about to get the fright of their lives. Suddenly, ever so slowly, the back of the canoe lifted up out of the water as if on a hydraulic jack, and then slowly tipped over. There was nothing I could do to prevent it. The Zambezi River teemed with wildlife, and a hippo, a fully grown territorial male bull, had upended the canoe with his massive body, spilling 27-year-old Paul and his customers into the river. Popping back up on the surface, Paul frantically yelled to them to swim to safety. I'm like, come on, let's get to the shore. So I swim to the shore. One of them follows me. I turn around, but the other one's panicked and they're swimming away from me towards this hippo that's submerged. And it's just standing there, jaws agape, like, oh, 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 doing its threat call. So I'm like, oh, crazy. So this, this other client's panicked. So I got to dive in, grab a hold of him turn around, drag him back, and now the hippo decides to let us know that he's there. So he's like snapping at the water and giving a fairly thorough threat display. I used to drive a Land Rover, and he would have been about the same length from tip of tail, if his tail was sticking out to tip of nose, maybe 15 foot, maybe five feet, a little little more, they were thereabouts high. And weight-wise, he probably weighed about twice what my Land Rover did. Um, just a chunk of a brute. He was pretty formidable. Anyway, we get to the shore. Um, we managed to get the canoes together, myself and some of the other guys, and we all agreed that that was particularly weird behavior. Weird behavior and weirdly large hippo. So because hippos are quite territorial, we got to know, like, oh, there's a new hippo in the area. And um, I'd been its first victim. Not long after, Paul, who'd been leading safaris for several years, decided he was finished. He'd run out of lives. 
And besides, it was time for a new adventure. I had declared it to all and sundry, my mum included. My mum was never a fan of me running photographic safaris. I took her on safari once and she was like, nope, don't want my son doing that. And um, I told her I was done and I, and I was done. But a couple of months after his run-in with that grumpy hippo, in early March 1996, Paul was roped into helping the National Parks control a pride of lions in Victoria Falls that were causing big problems. They were attacking and eating some of the villagers nearby. Things didn't go the way we planned them to that morning. And by about lunchtime, I knew there wasn't going to be any hunting happening that day. And so my plan was to head to the pub and watch a much-anticipated cricket match on the TV. And as I walked into the pub... Uh, one of my friends came in and said that the guide who was supposed to be leading the canoe safari that afternoon had come down with malaria and would I mind leading the safari. And I was like, sure, no problem. Paul loved that stretch of river and it was just the one trip. Besides, he'd be going with two local guides, Ben and Evans, who he'd trained over the years, and his dear friend Mac, a safety kayaker along with six clients, a German couple, Joe and Gundy, and four Air France crew. They'd paddle down the Zambezi River into the sunset with a tray of snacks and an esky full of drinks for the customers. There's no way Paul could have known, but this was a sliding doors moment. The French folk set up into 262, hopped into the other canoes with Ben and Evans, and Max set himself into, he had a little one-man kayak. We used to call it his crocodile bait kayak. It was smaller than a lot of the crocodiles in the area. And off we set. It was just another beautiful day in Africa on the Zambezi River. We got to this one point where this pod of hippos just lazing in the middle of the river, sunning themselves in the shallows. So I stopped and I pulled the group together and I, I started to tell everyone a little bit about hippos. Of course, there's always someone in a safari who's done their homework and says, is it true every year hippos kill more people than any other animal? And most years that is true. We're going to try and avoid that. Paul wanted to steer clear of that Range Rover-sized territorial male, especially since among the pod of hippos ahead was a female and her calf. So he decided to cut around the mammoth creatures through a narrow set of channels. I went first, both behind me followed, presumably both behind that followed. Mac was paddling his safety kayaker. I get to this beautiful channel, it's maybe 15, 16 feet wide, and it's full of weeds and trees and birds and some rocks at the front of the channel. Glancing back to make sure everyone was with him, Paul realised that Evan's canoe had fallen back a little. So to give him a chance to catch up, I set my paddle down and we're all just drifting and we're chatting about how beautiful it is. And the world is just, it's just got soft. It's in that afterglow of late afternoon. And we're all relaxing and soaking in that peace and tranquility when suddenly like, there's this huge like bang behind me and I knew that sound all too well, and I turned just in time to see Evans had cut a corner, had gone over some deep water, and the back of his canoe was maybe four or five feet up in the air on the back of this hippo. 
Evans was catapulted out of the canoe and into the river. But by some miracle, in what felt like slow motion, the canoe, with the two clients still inside it, landed upright. There was a cluster of rocks nearby and springing into crisis mode, Paul called for Ben and Mac to guide everyone there to safety. Evans is now on the river, drifting towards this female and a calf, which I know is not good. Evans, are you there? I'm coming to get you. So I start paddling towards him, and, and John Gurney clearly not thrilled at this prospect. So I turn my boat around. So now I'm paddling backwards towards Evans. So I figure if the hippo is going to come up, he's going to come up near me, and I can get at Evans most directly that way too. When I look over and I see this bow wave coming in at me, and it's just like the old um, war movies where torpedoes coming in on a ship. You just see this shape hauling in towards you. Now, as a safari guide, you had learned, okay, that means very large crocodile or hippo barreling in at you underwater. So what you do in that instance is you slap the paddle as hard as you can, and there's a, the slap, and the percussion under the water seems to turn the animal around. So anyway, slap the water, waves seem to dissipate. Ooh, that seemed to work. Got close to Evans, leant over. It was one of those kind of made-for-Hollywood movies where I'm leaning over. My fingers are almost touching his. And then the whole world just went dark and quiet. Engulfed in darkness, it was like Paul had suddenly gone blind and deaf. And a few seconds ticked by, and actually I had no idea what was going on. Um, I was completely disorientated. Getting my wits around me, I brought my attention to from my waist up... I wasn't dry, but I wasn't wet either, not like my legs were. And there was this incredible pressure crushing down on my lower back. My arms were pinned to my side. But somehow I managed to get one hand free and feeling around, I felt the bristles on Hippo's snout. At least now I knew where I was. I was head first up to my waist down the Hippo's throat. This was... A little weird. I, I, I can vividly remember the very, very, very first thought going through my mind is, oh, phew, thank goodness for that. Um, because I, I wasn't sure if I was up to my backside down a hippo's throat or down a crocodile's throat. And for some reason or other, a hippo's throat seemed like a better plan. That sense of relief was fleeting. Paul was being swallowed by a hippo. And inside the hippo's mouth, there was a terrible sulfurous smell like rotten eggs. Paul wriggled as hard as he could, trying to break free. But then I'm guessing maybe it was my hat or my sunnies or the fact that I was a 200 and something pound guy wedged down a hippo's throat and it was uncomfortable. But the hippo, like, gagged or spat me out. Bursting to the surface, I... "Ah!" Sucked it alone full of fresh air, and I came face to face with Evans, the guy who's trying to rescue. I'm like, we need to get out of here. So I turned and started swimming away, and, and I was making pretty good progress when I got the sense, ugh, all's not well. So I stopped and looked back, and sure, 
Evans wasn't going anywhere. I mean, his eyes were like saucers as he struggled to stay afloat. I think terror and panic had, had quite literally overwhelmed him. So I turned and I, I swam back for him. And I was I was just moving in for classic lifesavers pose when, wham, I was hit from below again. This time I'm feet first, up to my waist down a hippo throat. This time my legs are trapped, but my arms are free. So... I went for my gun. I used to carry a, either a 44 Magnum or a 357 Magnum revolver with me, just in case something like this ever happened. Um, it was no use to me, though. I couldn't even get close to grabbing a hold of the gun. It, the hippo just thrashed me all around. In fact, all I really accomplished during that phase of the attack was to almost drown. Dragging Paul under the surface, eventually the hippo spat him out again. This time when I break surface, I look around, no sign of Evans, and I, just relief. I'm like, whew, that means that uh, either Mac or Ben must have rescued Evans whilst I'm busy distracting the beast, and now I need to get the heck out of there. And I'm making pretty good progress. I'm swimming freestyle, and I can remember coming up for a stroke and looking over, I was looking over my right side, and just seeing the monster charging in towards me, his mouth wide open as he zeroed in and scored this direct hit. His huge tusks just tearing into my torso as he, um, as he crashed into me. Hippo's mouths have huge tusks, slicing incisors and a bunch of smaller chewing teeth. To Paul, it felt as if the bull was making full use of the whole lot as he mauled him. So here we go again. This time my legs are sticking out one side of his mouth, my arms, my head and my shoulders outside the other side of his mouth. And uh, I'm doing everything I can. I mean, I'm punching, I'm stretching, nothing. Nothing I do has any effect on him whatsoever. At one point, the hippo threw me up and into the air and I did this crazy sort of half twist before falling back into his mouth. And when he caught me, I can remember him biting down on me and squeezing so hard that I thought for sure he was going to chomp me in half. When we went underwater, I would hold my breath. And when we were on the surface, I would... <gasps> suck in air and all the while I'd hold on to the tusks that bore through me um, just so that my flesh didn't tear so much as he shook me all about. One of the clients would later say that it was just like watching a vicious dog trying to rip apart a rag doll. Paul had never heard of a hippo attacking repeatedly like this, but this bull clearly wanted him dead. For me, everything went to slow motion, so... After the hippo had his way with me for a while, I remember he stopped and he just dove for deep water. And then I can remember lying on the bottom of the river. There I was pinned inside his mouth, tusks pouring through me, and I'm looking up. And I can see the different hues of green and yellow, the sunlight shimmering on the water surface. And I remember just thinking to myself really surely, like, I wonder if you can hold their breath the longest. And then looking around me at, at the blood that was kind of mixing with the water and wondering which would happen first, if I'd bleed to death or if I'd drown. 
and it being very calm, very detached. And then, for some reason, the hippo surged towards the surface again, spat me out. This time when I broke water and I looked up, one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. Mac, the guy in the little crocodile aid kayak, my buddy, um, just in one of the most incredible displays of bravery, had risked his life to save mine and he paddled into this hot mess. And I managed to grab a hold of the handle on the front of this little kayak's nose. And Mac, I don't know where the strength and the courage came from, but he managed to pull me into the relative safety of this rock. All the while, the hippo just going nuts, um, trying to make sure that neither Mac nor I made it. By some miracle, they did make it to the rocky outcrop where Ben and the terrified clients were waiting. They'd witnessed the entire horrifying show. And so when I got to the rocks, I looked across at the clients and I tried to reassure them. I'm like, all right, folks, calm down, everything's going to be okay. And they all just stared at me with this look of horror and disbelief. Um, Having just witnessed the attack, it turns out that none of them could really believe that I was still alive. Paul was a mess. Still, he was the safari leader and his own well-being was the last thing on his mind. Looking around for Evans, he was nowhere to be seen. So he asked... Mac, where's Evans? And Mac just said, he's gone, Matt. He's gone. From what Max said and the way that he said it, I knew that Evans was was probably dead. That thought was was pretty overwhelming. Um, but at the same time, I don't know if this was my training as a guide, training I'd received, I'd served in the military before that, where the training came from. The realization, look, I'm the leader, I'm the guide, it's my job, it's my responsibility to figure this out, to come up with a plan to get us to safety. Uh, kicked in. First things first, I needed to evaluate our situations. I look around, I've got, (laughs) I'm down to one canoe, one kayak and one paddle. My radio, first aid kit and gun, all gone. Uh, We're perched on this cluster of rocks in the middle of the crocodile infested Zambezi River with just this angry hippo for company. It's dusk. I know it's going to be dark soon and quite a while before anyone even begins to miss us, let alone starts looking for us. And by then it'll be dark. And because I had chosen to go through the channels, who knew how long it would take for anyone to find us? And then I made the mistake of looking at myself. I was a mess. In fact, so much so I could see why everyone had this dead man walking, looking their eyes and they stared at me. Um, My one arm from the elbow down, it had just been crushed to a pulp and most of the skin had been um, torn off it. I think they call it being degloved. Um, From the elbow up, it was just shards of bone. As I started speaking, blood started bubbling out of my mouth and because you have this phenomenal first aid training, paramedic training to become a safari guide, um, Mac and I both knew I had a punctured lung. In fact, the wounds on Paul's back were so savage that Mac could see Paul's lungs. 
With no first aid kit, Mac had to think on his feet, so he ripped the plastic wrap off the nibbles meant for the guests. So he looked at my back and said, yep, we got some lung here. So uh, he was really clever. He uh, took the saran wrap from a tray of snacks and with that he was able to seal my lung and stop the lung from collapsing and me from dying there on the spot. Then he tore his bush green jungle shirt and he tried to patch up some of my other injuries. At the bottom of my one leg, it looked like someone had tried to beat a hole through my foot with a hammer and uh, I was just a, a hot mess. And I, I knew that as, as Mac was patching me up, um, that I needed to come up with a plan. I needed to get my team to safety and I needed to find evidence because who knew, maybe he was in a similar situation to mine. Um, so once we had stabilized me, um, I got Mac and Ben to load me into the remaining canoe and reassured the clients and said, okay, listen, guys, Ben, I need you to paddle me to the shore. We'll follow the current and keep an eye out for Evans along the way. And Mac, I need you to stay here with clients. I need you to keep everyone calm. And we're going to have a, a rescue and an extraction team out here as soon as we can. Then Paul noticed that Ben was staring out into the river. Just 20 yards away, this bull hippo that had just torn me apart and done who knew what to Evans was sitting there with a full-on threat display and I was asking Ben to paddle me through that to possibly safety. Um, I spoke earlier of Mac's incredible display of bravery. I I think Ben's display of courage that followed was equal to it. Um, I can't even tell you how incredibly grateful I am and awed I am by the courage of those two guys because Ben just nodded his head and got into the canoe and we were ready to set off. And then um, I had to do my Hollywood exit. So I turned to Mac and I said, hey, Mac, please tell my family I'm sorry and that I loved them. And he was just like, no, mate, you tell him yourself. And with that, he just eased our canoe out into the river. And... Time slow to an agonizing crawl. Um, I'd like to say I did my part. I was all brave and I was looking for Evans and, and all of those kind of great things. But really, I just lay there absolutely terrified. Uh, first, we had to get past the Sippo who just had his way with me and um, he wasn't done. He mocked charged, he threatened his leg, he bumped up against the canoe. He, he tormented us. But somehow or other, he led us through. And we followed the current. And like I said, I tried to keep an eye out for Evans, as did Ben, but I didn't see him. And I can remember at one point, we had been in the the canoe for an indeterminable period of time, um, seemed to be forever. And I was so scared. And I was in so much pain when suddenly... Everything just went calm and peaceful. I don't know what it was, but what I do know is the pain went away and suddenly I felt this calmness, this depth of calm, this depth of peace that I didn't know existed. And I knew that it was my moment of choice. 
on the one hand, I knew, really? If I wanted to, I could go. On the other hand, I could choose to stay. So it really became, do I give up and call it a day or do I try to fight my way through this and stick around? The moment I made the choice to stay, the pain that came back with that was incredible. The pain was so intense that I was scared that I was going to die. And when I didn't, I just wished that I would. But I didn't. Reaching the shore, tragically, Evans was nowhere in sight. But thankfully, by chance, a medical team was nearby on an emergency drill. With their help, an extraction team was called to get everyone stranded on the rocky outcrop to safety. And Paul began an agonising eight-hour road trip to hospital. I will say the road trip, because they couldn't give me any painkillers because they needed to keep me awake because of all the head, neck and spinal injuries, not great. Not great. So it was an interesting day at the office. And when I got to the hospital, I remember them wheeling me into the operating room and then they left me there and I'm lying there on this table and I'm looking up and there's this bright spotlight shining down on me and I can't really see anything, but I can hear people talking and I can hear things like, ugh, that foot's a mess. And then, ugh, his arms are barely still attached. Among the chatter, one comment stood out starkly for Paul. He's definitely going to lose a limb or two. A 27-year-old in the prime of his life, that was too much for him to bear. So I can hear all this talk about bits and pieces coming off and I can feel myself starting to panic. When the doctor shows up, he goes, Hi, Paul, my name is Dr. Nube. I looked up into his eyes and I, I said to him, Doc, I know that you're going to do what you got to do, but what do you say you take the minimalist approach? Paul's request was simple. Try to amputate as few limbs as possible. Shortly after that, the priest barge in between us gave me last rites and the doc went off to work. And I remember waking up and being a little confused at first and then remembering what had happened. And doing a body scan to see which parts are still attached and which were gone. And I remember looking from my left hand because that had been the most, the most mangled. And looking and seeing no hand, uh, no wrist, no forearm, no elbow, no, no arm. And realizing that my arm was gone. Paul had been in surgery for hours, far longer than anyone had anticipated. What else had he lost while he was under? Whoa, in the space of a few hours, I've gone from being like this active outdoorsman to being a cripple and then feeling like, oh, what about the rest of me? So I lay there for quite a while and then I can remember there was some fear. And um, then I forced myself to look for my, my right arm and I remember seeing the fingers and moving them and just feeling this immense relief. And then looking down at where my legs were supposed to be, there was this big cage covering them. And the nurse who was in the ER with me there, she must have seen people dealing with this many, many times because she came up and she grabbed the corner of the sheet and 
it was weird. It was, it was as if she could read my mind. It was as if she knew that I didn't want to look and I was too scared to see, but at the same time, I needed to know what was left of me. So, um, yeah, she whipped back the sheet and I looked and there at the bottom of each leg was a foot. I can remember leaning back into my pillow and just thanking God and having just this incredible sense of relief as I realized how fortunate I was having faced the possibility of losing up to three limbs. I'd lost just one. And that wasn't even the worst of it. Sadly, Evan's body was found downriver two days after the hippo's brutal attack. Paul was racked with grief for his friend, and the following few weeks were hell. It was going to be a long time before I felt fortunate again. Uh, I went through a, a roller coaster of moods and emotions. There were more surgeries to come. I developed gas gangrene, which meant my body was rotting from the inside, so the doc had to chop off more of me. Um, I had to get last rites again, which, let me tell you, as a recipient, is not exactly a confidence booster. Um, it, it was pretty rough for a while, but once things stabilized, I was having a conversation with Dr. Nobe and he, he first urged me to remember that I was the sum of my choices, um, that I was exactly who, what, and where I chose to be in life. And that's when the doc told me the story about the night I came into the ER. And how he walked in and he had been briefed on my situation by the shock trauma doc who was bringing me in. And they really didn't think I had a snowball's open hell of living. Um, and he had thought from the description of his injuries, take off both arms, potentially one leg. And the, the odds are this kid's not going to make it. And he said as he stood by my bed, and introduced himself and the fact that I was pretty cocky that I looked up to him and said, hey, what do you say you do what you got to do, but what do you say you take the minimalist approach? He said in that moment, my choice to have that conversation with him changed the course of my life. It was a far, far riskier surgery. It took many, 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 many hours longer. The recovery time was going to take more time. It was going to hurt a lot more. And... Um, really wasn't his first course, but um, he said, you can always be grateful that's a conversation that you had. It changed the course of your life. And so when he did that, I could just remember getting really, really pissed off. And um, because on the one hand, it made sense, but on the other hand, I'm like, screw you, doc. I've just had my life torn apart. I've lost everything that I love about my life. And so... Um, he discharged me from the hospital shortly thereafter. And I'm like, I don't need you as a friend. I'm going to go make friends with Jack Daniels, Johnny Walker, and Jose Cuervo because they understand what's going on in my life. And I, I went to a pretty dark place for a little while. Paul had been a horrible patient, angry, self-pitying, and filled with guilt over Evan's death. Turning to booze, he tried to drown his problems, but his family refused to give up on him. They just kept on loving me. They took my grief when I threw it at them and threw it right back at me. I can remember one day I was being particularly obnoxious and my mum coming up to me and saying, Paul, 
hippo attack or not, there is no excuse for that type of behavior. It's time for you to get on with your life. And that's what I started doing. I started getting on with my life. And before I had my run-in with that hippo, I had dreamt of canoeing the Zambezi River. That's the river I was attacked on all the way from its source to where it flowed into the sea, largely because it had never been done before and largely because it was just this incredible river. And now I'd lost an arm, but I still dreamt about it. And when I, ever I did, I kept coming back to the same question. I mean, like, why not? I mean, sure, I'd lost an arm, but that just made things more interesting. So my prosthetist, Rob, Rob made me a kayak paddle that we could strap onto my remaining arm, and I learned to kayak again. And so about two years after my run-in with the hippo, um, I set off leading an expedition. It took us three months, and at the time, we completed the fullest descent of the Zambezi River to date. Um, we paddled almost 1,600 miles. Paul used the trip as a vehicle to launch a non-profit organisation focused on helping amputees who weren't as fortunate as him. And um, that became the stepping stone into a new life. Uh, The journalist I hired for that expedition, uh, before we set off, introduced me to his family and I met and fell in love with his sister. And... um, Once the expedition was complete, the river trip was over, but I was more in love than ever. So uh, I moved to America and married this incredible woman and um, didn't really think it through fully. I mean, there wasn't exactly a huge demand for one-armed safari guides in the metro Detroit area, Um, but it seemed like the next right thing. More than 20 years on, sadly, Paul and his wife have parted ways. Still good friends, they're grateful for their three beautiful children. Every challenge he comes up against, though, including a recent battle with cancer, which he won, Paul's used the vital lessons he learned from that angry hippo and in the aftermath of the attack. And that was in the face of whatever adversity is that life throws at you. Be grateful. Find someone, something, somewhere to be grateful for. Be kind. Be kind to to others, but as importantly, be kind to yourself. And then just do the next right thing, and then the next right thing, and then the next right thing. You know, stuff's going to happen. Good things, bad things, whatever. I can play the victim. I can feel sorry for myself. I can give up. I can tell you how the world sucks. And if I go down that road, if that's where I choose to go, that's going to be my experience. But by the same token, I can choose to look down that path where, you know what, I can be grateful for still being alive. I can look for the learnings and I can choose to just do the next right thing. And if I do that, then who knows what the future holds? Paul runs the Templar Foundation, a non-profit which helps people to navigate post-traumatic stress disorder, as well as terminally ill and disabled kids and their families. For more information, visit paultemplar.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe so you don't miss more incredible stories of survival. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review. It really helps. And we'd love it if you could find our Facebook group, How I Survived, and we're on Twitter, at SurvivedPod. 
Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.